Hi, everybody. Welcome to the July 24th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, we are doing our CIO hybrid edition. Three of us in the studio, safely distanced, and two guests joining us remotely. I want to keep assuring our audience that we are back, but we are doing it safely. Let's get to it. Protests over police brutality continued in Denver this week. On Sunday, local groups aggressively confronted attendees of a law enforcement appreciation event at Civic Center Park. On Monday, well-known musicians hosted a concert rally near Fiddler's Green to protest Greenwood Village's recent resolution stating that the city will pay the legal expenses of its police officers who are sued. Meanwhile, the Denver Police Department is in a closed-door collective bargaining sessions with the mayor's administration. Patty Cahoon for Westford, we start with you. Uh, Sunday did not go well, at least from the reports we saw. You had folks um, from different perspectives. Uh, what, what do you make of what we saw Sunday, and what might continue with this? It doesn't seem like it's going to get better anytime soon. No. Let's go to Greenwood Village first, because that is the easier one. It was a great protest on Monday night. You had members of the Flowbots, the Lumineers, Nathaniel Rateliff, and the Night Sweats. They were protesting, and it's not just holding police, you know, worried about immunity. It's if they have been found to have acted in bad faith, they will still cover the $25,000 that the new police reform bill could hold an officer liable for. So this was a very peaceful, but loud, because it was musicians, protest at Greenwood Village. They marched through the sleepy streets of Greenwood Village, playing music with the Brothers of Brass. If you've seen them, they've been downtown a lot. It was a great group of young people getting involved and smart musicians saying, hey, we'll make Greenwood Village feel the problem. We're not going to play at Fiddler's Green, which is a big tax revenue. So when you're looking at a useful protest, that was one of them. Greenwood Village hasn't packed down yet, but it was a good protest. Sunday was a mess, and we are still beginning. We're still hearing what really happened there. You had Randy Corcoran's group, the pro-police rally there for, what, the sixth time, was at Civic Center, had the permitting, was planning on doing it. You had the counter-protesters come early, then go down there and mingle, to use a polite term. Uh, parts of it were very polite. My photographer said parts were not. The, poli- the Denver police role in it is really the big question. What happened? Were they told to stand down? Did they not protect the protesters? Basically, let's remember everyone has a First Amendment right to protest. Let's be sure they're all protected. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, this seemed like it could have been the first test for some of these new policies, and it did not seem like it went well. And I also don't know how these policies are enacted when it comes to a counter-protest. It's one thing to say what our action is going to do when the protest is just going one direction, if you will. But a counter-protest seems very different. I think back in the, I'm not sure if it's 80s or early 90s, when you had um, KKK protests in downtown Denver and you saw counter-protesters. But what did you make of what we saw on Sunday and beyond? Well, uh, it's quite common when one group has a protest that a group with a different point of view has a counter-protest nearby. They're both protected in their fundamental civil rights to do that, and neither has any legal right to interfere with the other. They can have simultaneous protests, but one one group can't try to uh, destroy the rights of the other, which is what happened here. In in fact, this aggressive confronting uh, amounted to, to beating people bloody. Uh, given a guy a, a huge gash on it on his head, among other things, and these uh, protesters, counter protesters, were from communist organizations who announced in advance they were going to shut down the peaceful prote- uh, pro police rally. Now, according to the head of the Denver Police Protective Association, the police union, 
the police were under orders to stand down and not interfere when the communists assaulted the peaceable assembly. Senator Gardner has called for a federal investigation, which I think is very appropriate. When a government discriminates against a peaceful assembly on the basis of the assembly's point of view and allows a violent mob to assault them, that is an extreme violation of the Federal Civil Rights Act, and Mayor Hancock and Chief Pazin could be personally liable for the injuries suffered by, by the victims. Uh, the mayor's continuing silence enables the violence. In his city, violent communists have a right to assemble, and peaceable moderates and conservatives do not. Like Mayor Stapleton, Mayor Hancock is an active ally of violent hate groups. Eric Sonner, we go to you next, a columnist with Cara Politics and a uh, uh, political uh, analyst for many years. Eric, uh, this doesn't seem it's going to get better anytime soon, but we do seem to be looking at the effect of city policies rather than state or even national. Uh, but we've all seen another communities where those begin to blend. Uh, when it comes to the civic policies installed here and how they need to move forward, especially when it comes to a counter-protest, what are your thoughts? Oh, so many thoughts, Dominic, but let me try to frame them. I agree with the elements of both what Patty and, and David had to say. I don't know that the name calling of uh, describing rallies as or protesters as communists really serves any purpose. And I would only take some exception with Patty in the sense of I'm not sure it's our job to label good protests versus bad protests. People have a right to protest. Now, Randy Corcoran and Michelle Malkin and others who were involved in that pro-law enforcement rally last Sunday, they certainly weren't doing the Denver police any favors, but that's not necessarily their job to do favors. They're provocateurs uh, on their own right. It does bother me the extent to which the city just stood down and let this thing be terminated. Yes, counter-protesters, as David points out correctly, are very much part of the scene. There's nothing terribly new about that, that they should not be able to drown out somebody's right to protest. We live in such a moment right now where there is such little tolerance on any side for the other side having a viewpoint and being able to get that viewpoint out there. Until we deal with the issues of tolerance and the ability to accommodate multiple viewpoints, this is going to get worse before it gets better. Penfield Tate joins us, a longtime state lawmaker, now attorney with uh, Tate Law. Uh, Penny, look at this situation. Um, there, there's, there's nothing terribly positive to pull from it, but where, where do we go forward here? Because it feels like uh, on really both sides, you're getting a, a blurring of what a movement and positive change can happen and things that want to be defended. And then you also have players that are uh, instigating different things that are really taken away from potential movements and other ideas. Uh, what, do you, what do you see moving forward? You, you know, I, I, Dominic, I think as a community, we have to stay focused on the real issue and the real point. The reason we had the protest initially, the push behind Black Lives Matters, is because police officers in Denver and around the country were killing black men in particularly indiscriminately on the street. And it got to the point where with the murder of George Floyd, it just mobilized an entire country to say enough is enough. And, and, and it is a perfectly appropriate for people to have rallies and to support the police department. You know, you, you made a point earlier talking about what used to happen 
uh, years ago when we used to have the Martin Luther King Marade, the Klan would intentionally reserve space on the east, west side of the Capitol just so they could be loud or disruptive. And if they couldn't get that space, they'd take up some other space down around Broadway and Colfax or Lincoln and Colfax. The police ought to keep the groups separated. People have a right to protest and, 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 and express their opposition to, to excessive force. And people have a right to, to gather and express their support for law enforcement. The National Western Complex parking lot appears to be Mayor Hancock's preferred spot for a sanctioned homelessness encampment. The Denver City Council will have to approve the location, but the organization leading the effort, Colorado Village Collaborative, says they already have enough funding to run the site for six months. Denver City Council has called for multiple sanctioned sites to help protect homeless people from the spread of COVID-19. Dave, we go to you uh, first in this one. Uh, we've been looking for some sort of positive way, and there, there is no sudden solution to homelessness. We talked about that um, ad nauseum here. But when we look at a centralized point uh, in a neighborhood, and I, we, we read reports from folks in Elyria saying, wait a second, <laughs> what else is going to be thrown into this neighborhood uh, to, to their detriment? Um, is this something that is a good public policy idea? It might be, but certainly what's, what's going on right now it isn't working. You know, it used to be when people said they wanted Denver to be like San Francisco, they were aspiring to be a, a vibrant, culturally diverse, uh, thriving city. And now Denver and San Francisco are becoming more and more alike. High crime, low public order, public and private property desecrated and, and destroyed. More and more areas that are too dangerous to walk and, and even worse after dark. You know, it's really important that there be resources for people who want to stop being homeless. Uh, but the, the fact is, lots of people who are don't want to stop. Some of them, the reason is because of mental illness, and for others, and others have, have other reasons. And under current laws, government can't force people into mental health treatment um, unless they're imminently dangerous, which is not necessarily, is not the situation most of the time. But it, it, it also, it's not fair for everybody else to lose public spaces like the Civic Center and large areas of, of downtown and, and Five Points and, and other neighborhoods that are meant to be accessible and safe for everyone. Eric, as a public policy situation here, you have uh, the the National Western Stock Show parking lots. I think many people, whether they go to the stock show often or not, know how big these parking lots can be. They are in an industrial area. There's a neighborhood nearby, but let's face it, O'Leary and Swansea have been probably the, the least powerful neighborhoods in Denver for a long time. And now you have uh, an urgency to say, hey, every, every city council member should be looking for their own sanctioned spot. And I got to believe that's the last thing any other city council person wants to do is find a space in their council district. That does seem more fair. I don't know how realistic it is. Do you think we're going to see more sanctioned sites from other city council members? I'm not sure a lot of city council members are going to step up voluntarily, but I don't think it's going to last to only have a single site in Denver. And as you point out, Dominic, in a part of town that has often been a dumping ground for uh, one kind of environmental problem, one kind of social issue that out of sight, out of mind. That has been that district, that area of town, Elyria, Swansea, et cetera. You talk about intractable problems. I don't know of many more intractable public policy problems this city, this whole country is facing right now 
than homelessness. You have to break it apart. It is not one population. It is multiple populations. It is people who are mentally ill. It is people who are addicted to various substances. It is more and more people in economic crisis. And in some cases, it's people who just prefer that lifestyle. We are in danger. I haven't been spending that much time in Denver. I'm here for a couple of days. Spent some time just driving around yesterday around the Maury Middle School area, around the state capitol, the governor's mansion, etc. We are in danger of killing the goose here, the goose that provides the prosperity, that provides the tax revenues. David points out correctly, uh, this is becoming a less livable city all the time. Penn, I'll put it uh, pretty clearly to you. Uh, you ran for the position of mayor. If the election went differently, you would be the person we'd be talking about right now trying to decide what to do. Uh, looking at this situation, centralized site, Western Stock Show, making sure there's more sanctioned sites, a different idea. Where do you go with it? Well, you, you have to start with the fact that this is a multifaceted problem. One thing that David didn't mention, and, and, and much of what he said is true, Unfortunately, as was reported in the Post two weeks ago, Denver is now number two, only behind San Francisco in terms of gentrification. During the municipal elections last year, the two problems most frequently cited, no matter what neighborhood you went to, was the lack of affordable housing and the homeless problem. And the difficulty we have now, and Eric did a piece on this, where the administration's been out of sight, out of mind, they have essentially done nothing for a year and a half, then you put a pandemic overlaid on top of it and you have the disaster we have now. These outdoor camping sites were raised as a potential solution a year and a half ago during the campaign and this administration poo-pooed them. Now they put it out there, which I think they ought to do, but if they're going to lead, they shouldn't defer to city council and say, now you guys have to find eight or nine sites. This administration needs to find a host of sites put them on the table to have a comprehensive conversation. Because number one, 50 people per site is, is not going to really address the issue, especially if you only have one. And number two, there's funding for six months, but this problem has been exploding since a year and a half ago. So you know six months funding for the site at, at the Coliseum is not going to work or the National Western. And third, you're already tearing up Globeville, Swansea, and Illyria with the I-70 East project. Why would you compound the situation with this? Patty, I look at this, uh, familiar with the stock show complex. Boy, it's a great big parking lot, a lot of different space. But are we literally just kicking the problem down the road? Well, this actually makes sense for the first location. It's not one chosen by Candy C. DeBaca. This was one kind of put upon her district. But since we already have two temporary shelters, one in the National Western Complex and one in the Denver Coliseum, although they're going to be consolidating a bit, it makes sense to at least have one of the sites there because you can share services. You're promising at these safe camping sites more services than you would get normally on the streets. So that's good because you want those who want to get off the streets to have the opportunity. Clearly something needs to be done, and the city was, as Penn pointed out, really doing nothing. In April, so the pandemic is hitting, there are more people than ever on the streets. These service providers went to the administration and said, we want to do this. We want to set up a safe camping site or sites. We will take care of it. We have the funding. And it took almost three months for the city to finally agree. And meanwhile, if you are walking downtown Denver by Maury Middle School or Lincoln Park opposite the Capitol, you can see how great the need is. So Better now than it would have been better three months ago. Good that they're doing it now. Of course we need sites. 
that are in other parts of the city where people need to get to, that are closer. This is not easy to get to, but it does have the benefit that the nearest person is a mile and a half away, the nearest residence. Two weeks ago, Governor Polis signed a bill to tweak state election procedures in order to increase the number of election ballots delivered on time. Since then, the new U.S. Postmaster General has made two changes that will slow down the delivery of mail, canceling morning sortings and canceling multiple delivery runs by carriers in a single day. Meanwhile, President Trump and other Republicans continue to push to paint mail-in ballots as prone to fraud. Uh, Eric, we're going to start with you with this one. Colorado is one of five states to do an all-mail ballot. Uh, and so far, it feels like, I think, I don't know if this started in 2010 or not, at least close to it. Um, it's gone well for Colorado. Um, but a lot of different things are changing. Do you like the changes we've seen from Governor Polis? And are we at risk to see that success changed by unrelated changes going on to the U.S. mail? Oh, I think Governor Polis's changes are more on the order of tweaks. Uh, I don't think it's going to fundamentally change the success of Colorado's vote-by-mail system, nor the success of vote-by-mail systems in those other four states you mentioned, Dominic, Oregon, Utah, Hawaii, not sure what the fifth one is, uh, where it's a proven methodology of voting. And the Postal Service, Lord knows, has problems and issues that are totally apart from vote-by-mail, although they might complicate vote-by-mail. Once again, our government, our institutions have squandered valuable time. We saw that at the beginning of COVID when we had months of warning when it hit China, then it hit Europe. We had months of warning that the Trump administration and other authorities completely squandered in terms of preparedness. Now we've had months of warning that this fall election isn't going to look like most fall elections because of the pandemic, because people do not want to show up in large crowds and vote in polling places. And yet in many, many states and led by President Trump's resistance, led by President Trump trying to use this as an issue to cast doubt on the potential, even likely outcome of this election, we have squandered that time too. I think we are facing a potential crisis in this country in terms of what this election is going to look like, how it is going to be pulled off, and the ability, no matter who comes out on the short end of the election stick, to cast doubt on the process. It is we're playing with fire here, playing with matches as we have done so often. Ben, I look at the situation in Colorado and uh, I, I both remember the experience from the last 10 years of pretty successful mail-in balloting and I remember the lines on in 2008. I remember people's discussions in the early 2000s of electronic voting ballots and are those hackable and what's going on if, if I wait in two hours in line do my vote still count if it's already 10 o'clock at night. So it's not as if there's any particular methodology of voting that is perfect but when you're seeing changes like this and the success that Colorado has had, what are some of the thoughts that occur to you? You know, first, I think we need to give kudos to Jenna Griswold for continuing the work of her predecessors. Colorado's mail ballot system is the envy of the nation and ought to be copied and replicated around the country rather than Donald Trump, who votes by mail, by the way, casting doubts on it um, and continuing a tradition of voter suppression often sponsored by Republican legislators around the country who typically have wanted to keep folks from color of color from voting. So, so we need to just call it straight out what it is, is this is another attempt at voter suppression. Eric's right. 
the U.S. Postal Service has its issues, and part of its issues is the way Congress and prior administrations have dealt with them historically. But we need vote, voting by mail works. Um, there are very few instances of voter fraud that are pointed out, and it ought to be used to it to enhance and create the, the, the best opportunity for people to vote. Patty, uh, we see, again, an unrelated move, but something that might slow down the mail, uh, especially in larger areas of Colorado, rural areas. Um, does it become a conversation here, or is Colorado kind of in this election-safe bubble with everybody else kind of fighting for it themselves? Well, let's not forget that Donald Trump was calling Colorado fixed four years ago, uh, before the, even before the mail-in ballots came in and he won the election. We, are, we also have to remember there is a pandemic, so maybe mail-in balloting isn't perfect, but it certainly seems to have worked well in Colorado. Look at the last primary and the turnout we had. We would not have had a turnout like that if you couldn't mail in your ballots during a pandemic. We are clearly going to be in a pandemic in November that will discourage voting, even on top of the cynical attempts that will be made to suppress votes. So let's push mail-in balloting as much as we possibly can. Let's accept how successful it's been here in Colorado and use it as a model. And let's remember that unless Russians can disguise themselves as dogs and go bite postmen, I think that is probably the least corruptible system out there. They're not going to be able to hack into their mailbag. Uh, Dave, there's a lot of issues here between the U.S. Post Office and also mail-in ballots, but Colorado seems to be a central point for it. Uh, when you look at Colorado's success, uh, is that something that we can brag about, and it can be replicated? It, it's some, certainly something to brag about because it has worked well and it's, it's continued to be a clean system. That doesn't mean that can be replicated in other states. New York had a uh, fiasco. Uh, they've admitted with their their mail-in primary uh, voting. So, you know, we have a, a cleaner and less corrupt government than many other states, um, which, which affects competence as well. You know, in, in 2001, Jared Polis wrote an issue paper for the Independence Institute called uh, Privatizing and Eliminating the Monopoly of the United States Postal Service. And he, he, by the way, he's a very good writer and he was an easy guy to edit. And since then, all the things he talked about, the problems with USPS being unsustainable have just gotten worse. And then the pandemic comes and so they've lost lots of revenue from that. And they just have to cut costs. And so the, they're sensibly doing things to, to try to reduce overtime, which means the carrier is going to leave on time to finish the route without overtime. You may not have repeated deliveries to the same place in one day. And the, the practical effect is, yes, some mail deliveries will arrive one day later uh, than they otherwise would. But the, the post office uh, has to try to keep itself afloat, although it's, I think long-term prognosis is grim. It's time for a very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. And as always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Just drove past it on my way here. The block at 1400 and Lincoln, right down by the Capitol, which has become a tent encampment. It was cleared out as a public nuisance back and in January. Scene. And a crime scene, yeah. Drove by that last night, too. There was a shooting last night that killed someone. We still don't know exactly what happened there. We are going to have another protest there at 5 o'clock tonight to keep the feds out of Colorado. We'll know by the time the show is on what's happened. Uh, to clear up what I said to Eric a little bit, I'm not saying some protests are good politically. I'm saying they're good if they're effective and they are not harmful. They might be irritating, but a good protest gets the message across effectively. And we need some of those and not the mess we've had lately. 
It's a good description of CIO sometimes. We're not harmful, sometimes irritating. That's okay. Often irritating. <laughs> David, your, your turn. To also follow up on Eric, the people I call communists are the ones who belong to organizations that are led by people who say they're Marxist. Um, but my disgrace is Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, who said that bars and taverns have to close, have their businesses destroyed, unless they serve substantial food. And according to his definition, substantial food could include be a cup of soup, but if you have a dozen chicken wings, that's not substantial food. This is an example of the arbitrary and capricious behavior of him in the emergency that has destroyed lives and livelihoods. And sadly, Cuomoism uh, is a widespread type of problem in this country right now. Eric, you're up next. Well, it's good to know Patty and David were paying attention to my first response. I will accept their pushbacks in both cases. Uh, how about uh, Congressman Ted Yoho of Florida, who lost his cool and lost his mind on the steps of Congress? in going after Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in words that I cannot repeat on this show. I'm not a huge fan of AOC in many respects, but uh, that kind of incivility is all too emblematic of our political age right now, and it starts at the top. Penn. We have to learn to agree without being disagreeable. The marches that we saw in response to police violence made their point. But to the people who keep desecrating the Capitol and painting it just for kicks, that needs to stop because all you're doing is making everybody angry. You're here. Time to see something nice. Patty. Uh, it's great that the Great American Outdoors Act passed. We didn't really need Ivanka Trump here to remind us of it. It's not like Rocky Mountain National Park isn't getting enough traffic anyway. <laughs> David. University of Colorado researchers who have come up with a uh, test for the CCP virus that can result, uh, uh, give results within 45 minutes. Eric. Here, here to Penn's last statement. But for, uh, for me, it's July 24th. What better date for baseball and Rockies opening day? We'll see how long this season can go. We'll see if the players can stay healthy, but it's good to at least have a bit of baseball. Penn. Shout out to Therese Howard with Homeless Out Loud. Not just for making sure we understand the plight of the homeless and how significant the problem is, but in just warning us all that unless we get a hold of this problem, we have to learn to share public spaces with the homeless. And I would end with this. I don't profess to have any sort of uh, wisdom any more than the next person, but uh, in seeing all the different news and the different stuff and even glancing at any sort of social media feed, uh, I think the advice that I can't ever remember ever being bad one being just take a deep breath. Wherever you're at, whatever you're looking at, a grand Colorado sunset or a frustrating, mind-boggling news feed on your phone, taking a deep breath is never a bad idea. For everybody here at Colorado Inside Out and PBS 12, I am Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching this episode of Colorado Inside Out. Hope you have a wonderful weekend. Good night.